All right, Bizzlecast listeners, I am thrilled to be joining you for my commentary for Star Wars Rebels episodes three and four of season four in the name of the Rebellion parts one and two, starring our beloved ghost crew, as well as Forrest Whitaker and other great cameos uh, from Rogue One, to which this is a direct prequel, both the series and especially this episode. I have released most of my season one commentaries uh, for Star Wars Rebels, and I'm working to get through, um, well, I'm through season one, and going to do the sort of best of season two and three, but now that the season four, fi- uh, the finale season, uh, is airing uh, here at the end of uh, 2017. Um, I felt like I couldn't miss this opportunity to jump in, and especially as they've been getting better each week. Uh, this aired about a week ago, and last night, it's Halloween right now, last night uh, was episodes 5 and 6, and I'll be releasing that commentary in a day or two. And we start right on Yavin 4. And we're about to go into the conference room set uh, that was adapted for Rogue One, which we also saw in very similar form on this planet in that old temple uh, in A New Hope in 1977. This opening Y-Wing crash sequence with Hera is spectacular. And the reason I'm not doing the openings uh, episodes uh, of Season 4, Episodes 1 and 2, Legacy of Mandalore, I love Sabine. I, I really do. If you follow me, you know that I love female characters, especially, uh, I should say, empowered female characters of all stripes, especially in Star Wars, which has pioneered this in every series, in every movie, trilogy, in every generation, uh, from Leia to Rey and Jyn Erso, who I'm, God, I'm praying we get a, Jyn, a, a, a uh, Felicity Jones Jyn Erso cameo. Oh man, Hera is such a fucking badass. It's great to see her flying Y-Wings and soon to be X-Wings, I think. For whatever reason, even though it was the opener and we knew the big Mandalore battle was coming, it felt slightly under-budgeted. And I think, I, I feel more so that way because I came to the Rebels before the Clone Wars series and because I loved Rebels and fell in love with the character of Ahsoka Tano, uh, or the older version, I was like, okay, I have to go back and watch the Clone Wars. And I really like the Clone Wars. It's certainly more cinematic and artistically in some ways. Uh, from a design standpoint, here's Wedge and Tilly's. Um, from a design standpoint, this actually more in line with my aesthetics when it comes to this stuff. However, the storytelling and characterizations are are much better in in Rebels. Um, And I can understand why Disney went more of a Pixar route in terms of the look. But the bottom line is, the world building that went on in the Clone Wars, building from things that did work in the prequels and taking them to new levels, and that has informed everything from Star Wars Rebels to uh, Rogue One and the new trilogy. Uh, is really unparalleled, and, and the fact that we get a, clo- a Clone Wars uh, favorite, Saw Gerrera, whose sister sadly died as part of the cause. Here's Hot Hot Callus, um, voiced by David Oyelowo. It'll be interesting to see now that he's turned to the good guys, uh, how much of a hard time they give him. Uh, so far, they've been pretty easy on him, considering how horrific of a person he was, even though he turned and has been helping them. Uh, and we'll see what kind of role he has. Here's um, the lady who's played Mon Mothma in Rogue One and voiced her, who's so great and so reminiscent of the original Mon Mothma, Genevieve. I'm blanking on her last name right now, but Genevieve is great. And she shows a whole new sides to her. Um, here's not Jimmy Smith playing the, you know, super cool Bail Organa, father of Leia, uh, who we first met in the prequels and uh, have seen 
more and more of uh, in both the literature and here on and Star Wars Rebels. Anyways, the opening couple episodes felt not nearly epic enough. It felt, as my podcaster friends on uh, The Saga Continues talked about, like an episode that was demanding uh, the time and budget that the Clone Wars had. And it's interesting, Disney, you know, owning it now uh, versus, you know, George Lucas funding out of pocket. But the thing you can't fault George Lucas for is spending every last penny he can to make things look cool, uh, at least how he envisions them. And so the Clone Wars actually had a bigger budget, I think, per episode, because it was a war show, and they had massive battles that were, you know, filmed like Saving Private Ryan constantly, and that's really hard to do. The Rebels team isn't really equipped for that. They're an action adventure that specializes in raids and missions and stuff like that. And so even with all the jetpacks and guns and flying around, you know, masked people firing at masked people just isn't that interesting. It's actually less interesting even than clones fighting, uh, you know, attack droids or whatever. Even though the Sabine drama and character and family interactions were really, really strong in those first two episodes of season four, there wasn't much subtext. And it was a very self-contained story, which wrapped up nicely with Sabine giving over the Darksaber and coming back to the ghost. So that's great. So I wasn't sure what to expect. I did know that this episode was coming, or that these episodes were coming, but the confrontation coming up between Mon Mothma and the hologram of Sa- of Saw Gerrera takes the show to a level of seriousness that elevates it, that's different than what we've seen on this kid's show. I don't know if kids could relate to it or what they thought of it, but as an adult, seeing Mon Mothma really lose her shit for like the only time ever informs her character, but also really informs the, you know, unspoken history and relationship between her and Saw Gerrera in Rogue One and why they're at such odds. Now, I will say, Rebels has problems with consistency at times, and that's partially because it's trying to tell its own story within, you know, a prehistory of of the current trilogies, um, episodes four through nine, and is a kid's show on Disney and all these things. And so the fact that Mon Mothma so brazenly leaves the empire, uh, you know, the, the puppet senate of the bullshit, you know, empire, fake new republic, here's Kanan praying. There's, there's not enough of uh, Kanan Ezra this season yet, but they're doing it on purpose. I'll get back to that. So it's not clear why Mon Mothma, you know, brazenly and blatantly leaves the Senate, makes an announcement about joining the Rebellion, and now, and really into Rogue One, is again a softie and trying to make compromises and see a peaceful resolution. It doesn't really make sense, but it's not Rebels' fault. That was something that Rogue One put them in a bind for in some ways. They, it's almost like her characters had a softening now that she's come to the Rebellion and seeing all the horrors that are going on, and the choices they're forced to make, you know? Um, she's very much like Mary... Here's the discussion, right? It's not whether we fight, and it's, it's how we fight that choose to matters, yeah. Or how we choose to fight that matters, which we, we saw this scene in the previews, and, and they've had this discussion before. Ezra's well aware, and the thing is, Ezra's super practical, and that's so great about his character. You know, you think when he's following Maul briefly in, in season uh, two that he's under the sway of the dark side, and that's part of it, but it's really more that Ezra is just very practical and doing what needs to be done, and that's Sagarera, and that's why he's torn between the idealism and warmth and humanity of the Mon Mothma view of sort of civil disobedience versus Saw's extreme militarism 
Saw's a very divisive character, uh, even going back to the Clone Wars. Certainly, not everyone loved Forrest Whitaker's, you know, somewhat over-the-top performance, I suppose, in Rogue One. That was very intentional, trying to jibe with the original character, which is important to Forrest and the filmmakers, and which George Lucas loved and, and was really happy happened. George wanted to make a whole series of television show episodes based around Saw Gerrera, post his sister dying in the fight. Having Forrest Whitaker take over the character, he had to make it his own, but still retain some of the over-the-topness, which is, goes all the way back to the Clone Wars. I love Saw Gerrera. I was thrilled to see them have this double episode. Here's the confrontation. I'm assuming you've seen this before. I'm not going to shut up. You can tune me out for a minute or two here while these guys do, like, you know, in my opinion, like, you know, Golden Globe level work in terms of voice performance. This sets up Rogue One in such an amazing way. It's amazing that they keep doing prequels and prequels to the prequels and sequels to the prequels that are prequels to the next sequel prequels, and they just finding new, brilliant ways of, of doing this. You know, I mean, the prequels fail on a lot of levels to bring anything interesting to the telling of Anakin Skywalker, which we realized later we never really needed. But by introducing new characters, um, all the way from Saw Gerrera to Ezra and Kanan and the Ghost Crew, but in causes and storylines, plot lines, his, you know, quote unquote history that we're familiar with, it makes it fresh and expands on it. You know, that's why seeing Jin Erso and Cassian Andor and K2SO and Bodhi Rook and Baze and Shroot and those guys in Rogue One was much cooler than seeing characters that we knew. And we had great cameos from you know, Mon Mothma and Bail Organa and, you know, and uh, Saw Gerrera, portrayed by Forrest Whitaker, who's voicing him here. But they, they really left it in the hands of new characters to tell, to fill in that story. And I think that's much cooler. And I think the lesson learned was that the Anakin Skywalker we saw in the Clone Wars, who really took a backseat to Obi-Wan and certainly Ahsoka Tano, his uh, disciple, for many episode arcs at a time. I mean, Ahsoka really became the main character of the Clone Wars as the years went along and built up a huge young and female audience. Oh man, the romance between these two is great. Uh, maybe we'll get back to it. It kind of speaks for itself. Have chemistry in a cartoon like this is so, is so, so great. And they're very close in real life. And, you know, uh, mature adults who both have family and kids, but they, they clearly have chemistry, and they're definitely in the, the sound booth together, which is not the case with the most animated shows where everyone's recorded separately. That's Guerrero talking, right? Yeah, Hera's feeling it too, which I like. Yeah, I don't even know where I started with that. I'm going all sorts of directions. So, this is directly before Rogue One. And I think they, they hatched the season well. Actually, they hatched and recorded the season before Rogue One came out because they said they're always a year ahead. So I think this was like a year ago that they recorded this. Knowing what the Rogue One script was, but having to keep everything under wraps and wanting to tell their own story, it's really seamless. And now, you know, the subtext between, as I was saying, Mon Mothma and, and Saw Gerrera is, is clear now. That Mon Mothma would be would know what you know who Jedi's were and have contact with them is great. By the way, I think the the superstar of this double episode, especially the second part, is Chopper with the prisoners. I mean, Chopper really saves the day many times over in this one. It's great to see. We know that Chop Chopper 
Hera and the Ghost survive at least until Return of the Jedi and maybe later in the Star Wars timeline. We don't know about the rest of the characters. I'm going to save speculation on who dies uh, in this season for later. <laughs> Uh, I think Kanan's going to die. I don't think Sabine Ezra are going to die. As my buddy Adam Dietz, who's been on the podcast numerous times, has pointed out, it's a kid's show. And they're really emphasizing the young characters to be in Ezra in the final season, which they should be doing uh, for the kids and their growth, you know, and their, their journey. And I think it would be, it would be brutal, e- even in the modern Star Wars, which is afraid to take chances on this, you know, front. It's just watch Rogue One once, um, or even any of the Clone War episodes where a lot of people die brutally. There it is, boom. This save right here and her extended look and sigh. I never believed that there would actually be a romance between these two. Dietz is convinced they're the parents of Ray. We'll see. Oh, Chopper. <laughs> uh, so I've only seen, I don't think I've mentioned this yet. This is only the second time I've seen this, people. Unlike the other episodes where I've seen, I've seen a bunch of times. Seasons one through three. But when I first saw that chopper gag, you could see it coming a mile away, and it's absolutely hysterical. But unlike most chopper gags, this one's actually setting up that he's the true hero of this, this episode. I've been saying for a while since I've... Now again, I've only come to Rebels post-seeing Rogue One, but I've caught up quickly and become a massive super fan and seen it a bunch of times, and really, 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 really love what they've done to the point where I back, went back and watched the Clone Wars, which I never thought I was going to do, and like that way more than I thought. Especially, It's worth it all for the character development of Ahsoka Tano and for a much cooler Anakin Skywalker, which is what I was trying to say before. Which oh, That was the, yeah, the lesson learned was that in the Clone Wars, by making Anakin a more, slightly more laid-back and likable character, but not the main character, that it was to be his mentor and his student and, his, and Padme and so forth, people around him who were the main characters or even the bad guys were often main characters or lead characters i should say made anakin a much cooler and more interesting uh character and relatable i think if george lucas could go back and the clone wars didn't just happen i mean it was lucas's idea he was behind the main story ideas. He brought in a bunch of new creative talent who, who are still at Disney after the sale because of how talented they are in the work that they've produced. But it's still Lucas's baby, and it comes from his story ideas. And uh, <laughs> here's Telegray, voice of Ezra Bridger, doing an you know, intentionally bad English uh, imperial accent. But I think if Lucas could go back, He'd actually focus less on Anakin in the prequels, make Anakin a major character like in the Clone Wars, but, you know, give more agency and character development to Padme, certainly to Obi-Wan. I mean, Ewan McGregor was amazing. Even people who don't like the prequels admit that, you know, Obi-Wan as, young Obi-Wan as portrayed by Ewan McGregor was great, and we hope to see a movie with him. I think it's going to happen sooner than later, especially if Rey's a Kenobi. This guy keeps coming back. He doesn't make it through this, this situation, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Lucas would do differently in the prequels, but we're not there now. We're, right now, we're here with the Rebels. And, you know, it, what they did great in this episode was it was very, very, very heavy political diplomacy ideology stuff for the first five minutes, seven minutes or so. And then they went on a mission. Now they're on a mission, which is where the ghost feels most comfortable. 
they really have trouble when they're having to pick sides and ideologies because they are practical. They want to help the cause and do the right thing. But the ideologues, uh, both ends of the spectrum, are rarely someone that they can agree with all the time. You know, after these series of adventures and misadventures, they certainly end up more on Mon Mothma's side, but I still think Sabine and Ezra, while they're disgusted with and lose respect for Saw, who almost kills them numerous times, seemingly, I don't think they're completely unconvinced by his approach. I mean, they don't want to torture and kill civilians, for example, but you have to take risks. And, you know, it takes... I think what's great is they leave it unresolved. And part of the reason I think they go back to Lothal for the next bunch of episodes is because the rebellion needs to sort of stew in its inadequacy leading to Rogue One. I mean, that's the whole idea of Rogue One. I don't think people get is that the rebellion, we see it take down the first Death Star and A New Hope, and especially in Empire and Return of the Jedi when they're, you know, full swing against the Empire would not have probably happened had they not been catalyzed by Jyn Erso, Cassian Andor, and the, and the crew, and, uh, including the unnamed characters of the Rogue One, and then, of course, you know, Admiral Raddus and the Calamari, and everyone you know, jumped in their ships and, and, and joined them eventually. But someone needs to be the first people on the beach, even if you get gunned down and die. You know? It happened in Normandy in World War II, it happened in Rogue One. But those people are remembered, and their legacy will live forever. Oh, here's the return in the favor. Sabine and Ezra just work so great as friends, I, I, especially with the much more tender romance of uh, of uh, Freddie Prince Jr. as Kanan and Vanessa Marshall as, as Hera. It is much more interesting to me as a romance. Mature romances are really more interesting if you look at it. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Mon Mothma is very like Mary McDonald's um, president, Roslyn, Laura Roslin, in the first season of Battlestar when she's still idealistic and, you know, Adam is kind of pushing her around in martial law and putting her in jail and trying to run the show and she's trying to run a peaceful regime and, you know, the will of the people. But as, uh, as Bastard goes on, Mary McDonald's amazing portrayal of President Rosalind, she gets, I mean, she gets pragmatic and practical to an extreme to the point where she becomes the apparent right winger and, uh, oh, this is Kanan flying with the Jedi powers. is awesome. Ezra's done this before, but not with such control and consistency. The TIE Defenders, which we'll get back to maybe in the next episode. But, uh, you know, Mon Mothma is sort of like early President Rosalind, and she needs to learn to be more ruthless. Luckily, she's got people like Jyn Erso and Princess Leia, you know, who do the dirty work. I mean, Leia should be dead. She's been on the front line. She was on the front lines the whole time, you know? But the mature romance between uh, President Roslin and uh, Edward James Olmos as, um, excuse me, as uh, uh, Admiral Adama in Battlestar, really, I mean, no one would argue that their four-seasoned, long-burn, developing romance clearly overshadows intentionally i think in the end any apparent romances between hilo and sharon or you know starbuck and apollo or apollo and d and starbuck and and anders and up oh, here saw hatching his plan to to recruit young talent and steal them away for his extreme resistance stealing away from mon mothma's uh, pseudo rebellion 
but you know the, the Adama and Rosalind romance I'm about to start to complete that thought finally is you know it is so compelling and beautiful and, and the musical theme and their chemistry I think it's the same here maybe Ezra Sabine will have something maybe not they're still too young to really take it seriously either way we don't have enough time even if they live I think they're going to have to go their own separate ways I think Sabine goes back to Mandalore and Ezra maybe goes into hiding um, if he doesn't die boom look at that explosion that looks amazing so I don't understand why the budget of the Mandalore episodes seems subpar you watch this and then the next few episodes and they really stepped up their game at Disney and that's why I think they decided to do 13 episodes instead of twice that which I think was really smart for the final season put all their budget into it I'm always talking about like you know like Arrow and The Flash on CW would stop doing 24 episodes or 26 episodes and do half that and just spend more money per episode it would be much 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 better they could slow it down not have commercials put it on Netflix whatever this is still on Disney XD I don't know if they're making money on this, to be frank. It, it's unlike any of their other programming. Even on the alternate channel, it's still mostly straight-up kids' fare. This is something that everybody watches. But they don't even care. They're airing it like five times a day. It's on streaming service almost immediately. Uh, for free with commercials, or you can buy it for a couple bucks online. People are definitely, definitely watching this. I mean, this gets you know weekly coverage on you know the Nerdist and all, like, the Collider and all the mainstream uh, web and nerd uh, video and print media it's not it's not hard to see why because when it hits it hits yeah Hera knows about saw there it goes wow Ooh, so much to talk about hope that you uh join me for part two i'm not going to start a new media file here as i talked about as the credits run for uh in the name of rebellion part one we're going to look a little bit more in depth at the episode itself there was just so much background to get to i think my final thought before jumping to part two is just that you know they again they didn't have to do a prequel to rogue one which was already a prequel to a new hope but they're able to tell their own story within the universe and that's why the, the disney story group is so 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 brilliant in what they do so so uh, go ahead and uh, queue up Season 4, Episode 4, in the name of The Rebellion Part 2. I will give you a second, and I'm going to count you down uh, right now. Alright, here we go. Three, two, one, go. Alright folks, welcome to the second part of In the Name of The Rebellion, Episode 4 of Season 4 of Star Wars Rebels. Tried to fit in a ton of stuff in the first part, having to do with bigger picture of Season 4, Rebels, and Star Wars in general. And here, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the episodes. Because all of the big politics and setup has now led to the two youngest members of the Ghost Crew, Sabine and Ezra, being somewhat tricked by Saw to help him. They certainly sympathize with him wanting to take action and, you know, like, make things happen, not just talk, uh, and, you know, talk around the issue the way Mon Mothma seems to. Now, Ezra has spent time with him before in Season 3 and knows to be suspicious of his attitude towards other life forms and his willingness to sacrifice to attain his ends. Yeah, he's already trying to, uh... Right. He says, you owe me one, but also, you could run errands for Mothma, or you could help me. Right. Help me do something that might actually matter. 
a little smile on their face. And the thing is, if Saw actually uh, went through with his his promise, they they would be on board. There's the two tubes who everyone loves. Saw's right hand man. They're in a U-wing, of course. So now that they're close to to Rogue One in terms of the timeline, they can start doing Rogue One-y things like being a U-wing with Saw Gerrera and two tubes. So I love space stations. I've never really talked about this. I think space stations are like the coolest thing ever because it just seems impossible to build them. You can have a space dock where you're building spaceships or you can build spaceships on the ground, but to build a space station... They do a pretty good job overall. Although, in the Star Wars universe, they don't rely on massive space stations. Oh yeah, Sabine with the graffiti gun. I I have an action figure that's literally just Sabine with her graffiti gun, uh, her paint, you know, her paint gun and the stormtrooper helmet that she's put the uh, the sign of the Phoenix on. She's not even armed with this action figure. It just just graffiti equipment. It's fantastic. But anyways, because the ships are so massive and they love the Super Star Destroyers and the giant rebel cruisers and stuff in the Star Wars universe, you don't get the sort of massive star bases that we see in, in Star Trek. And even, you know, giant super weapon bases like the Star Destroyer can jump into hyperspace somehow. Although they, they did sneak around that very conveniently in Rogue One, where they just say there's a massive object coming out of hyperspace, and all of a sudden you see the gorgeous shot above Scarif of, uh, of the Star Destroyer just above the atmosphere. You know, cargo-related, you know, heist jobs is central to, to Rebels. And, you know, it can be a criticism of the show that they are always doing stuff like this, but, you know, now that I'm going through my first rewatch, my second watch, my first rewatch of uh, The Clone Wars, and handpicking uh, episode arcs of, of the important characters and, and plot arcs and, and, and world-building stuff, like I'm currently watching the Mandalore stuff with Duchess Satine, where we find that Obi-Wan had a lover, and it's a great relationship between those two, but, um, there's so much war in the Clone Wars, and it's so cinematic and, and well done, and bloody and brutal. I mean, it's it's way darker even than Rogue One. I don't know how the George Lucas that made, the new Ho- made A New Hope ended up making Revenge of the Sith, and then the Clone Wars, which is even darker and bloodier. And I can see why Disney had to cancel it, even though they really liked what they were doing. It was just too dark for for Disney Star Wars. Now, we'll see in The Last Jedi, post-Rogue One, how far they're willing to go with a dark vision. Uh, but there's a difference between a dark vision and a bloody vision, and the Clone Wars is, is just straight-up bloody warfare. But they love the characters, like Saw Gerrera and like Ahsoka, and so they brought them into Rebels into other media. But I will say, I think the heist jobs in Rebels, the repetitive nature of some of the heist jobs in Rebels don't bother me as much as the repetitive, you know, warfare stuff in Clone Wars, because it's just not as exhausting visually and mentally. There's so much going on in Clone Wars visually, just like in the prequels, that it's just overwhelming. Rebels is a much more minimalist, you know, aesthetic, obviously, which works with the you know, the smaller um, scale heist jobs and little things like painting Chopper different colors and having him do different stuff. 
And, you know, they're always working out sort of relationships, not always, but they're often working out relationship stuff with these heist jobs. And certainly through the first, you know, six episodes or so that have aired uh, from season four, they're majorly building Sabine and Ezra's uh, friendship, at least. Certainly, they, they work extremely well together. I mean, you know, they still have Zeb. They st- we know Hera's going to survive and Chopper. We don't know about Kanan. Everyone thinks Kanan's going to die. But what's cool about this episode is if you envisioned that they just ended up separated forever, they ended up joining Saw's rebels, you know, his cell, his more extreme selves, and Sabine and Ezra never reconnected with the ghosts, they would be extremely effective with one another, not even needing the mom and dad and Uncle Zeb. Always, you know, also in both Rebels and Clone Wars, the sort of protection of civilians and babies and stuff like that can be tiresome because it seems like they're babysitting. Uh, in this episode, it's, you know, resolved somewhat nicely because they, they end up joining the Rebellion because of this. Mitch Matt. <laughs> Two first names. But this connects in great to Galen Urso. Now, they haven't mentioned Galen or Jyn Urso by name. They have mentioned Krennic, and they know there's some sort of weapons project. And if you read the prequel to Rogue One, which is excellent, called Catalyst, where we meet Galen and Galen Urso and his wife Lyra during the Clone Wars, when they're actually rescued by Krennic and the Republic, the Old Republic, which becomes the Empire, and they're sort of indebted to him, and he's, you know, kind of... Uh, I mean, Galen's not forced at first to work on the Death Star project, but he doesn't know what it is. He thinks it's an energy project, so Krennic's lying to him. So the book's about the relationship between Galen and his wife Lyra, their young daughter Jen. You know, she's, she's very young at the time. Krennic, of course, who's manipulating everything. We see how compartmentalized, it's very smart how they do it in the story, how compartmentalized they make the Death Star project so that no one really knows what's going on. And that way they can get the best minds in the galaxy without having to actually tell them what uh, what they're working on. And there is a really horrifying scene in, uh, in Catalyst, the, the prequel to Rogue One book, where Krennic just kills a whole bunch of scientists after their part of the project is done. It's almost like this group here, and there's another group of scientists. Now, we see a similar thing in Rogue One when he finds out that Galen Urso was the one who was betraying him. He still kills all of Galen's scientists as retribution. Also, he feels like he doesn't need them anymore. So, Krennic is certainly not opposed to killing his scientists when he feels like he's done with them. Now, you would think that word would eventually get out about such a thing, but he's so obsessed about building the Death Star, he can't see past getting the Emperor's favor from constructing the superweapon. Alright, so here's the beginning of the Death Troopers, I think. Did we see them last episode? You know, the people who love the Imperial stuff and who complain about how bad the Stormtroopers are uh, as fighters, you know, really love the Death Troopers in Rogue One. When they're, you know, unleashed, they, they just 
massacre the rebels and then here they seem to be just kind of stormtroopers in black outfits again but you know it's a kid show and it's our heroes and if our heroes can't take down death troopers then you don't have a show so I mean, they're clearly smarter just in the way they don't rush into battle and are trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, as Pablo Hidalgo of the story group, who is tasked with answering every annoying fan question ever, said, they didn't envision this as just smoke. You know, when Sabine throws a, a grenade, it's always got something special. So even though they can filter and see through normal smoke, we have to assume that Sabine's got some sort of Sabine special going on with this to affect even the Death Troopers. Here it is, the giant-ass Kyber Crystal. Kyber Crystals were a major part of Catalyst, and through the transitive property in Rogue One, you know, Jint's got a Kyber Crystal on her necklace, and they talk about the Empire's taking Kyber Crystals off of Jeddah, and they're trying to figure out why. It turns out that they're using them to power the Death Star, which is brilliant. It's great that that's sort of the lead or the best uh, Death Troopers of a female, and they don't even comment on it. It's great. You know, I've been talking a lot about how no one talks about Rey being a girl for the most part, and I was listening to uh, Steel Saunders, the w- wacky um, Australian uh, uh, comedian and podcaster who does Steel Wars podcast, where he does live call-ins with, with guests um, and fans, you know, pretty much every week. Um, or or more so, and he's he's talked a lot about being sort of a tr- you know coming from a traditional Australian background, you know, being a white guy, and you know having to adapt to sort of the new you know plurality of political correctness. And uh, he he was talking recently about how even among his sort of old school dude friends, like no one, like everyone just loves Rey as a character and she's like the new Luke Skywalker. And so it doesn't matter that she's a girl. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Even Sabine. I mean, she's clearly very feminine in some ways, but they, they don't really comment on it a whole lot. And Ezra hasn't really been questioning her since season one, which is interesting. We won't see till next episode, but they have Sabine finally go back to her natural i think natural hair color of like dark brown and as much as i love the graffiti hair when you see her in the dark brown hair next episode she immediately looks like five or ten years older more mature it's a really good choice you're still betraying them so okay so here we go so so I was trying to learn the secrets of the enemy, but by alienating all his potential allies, you know, he's clearly delusional, and, and that's a big part of it. You know, he, he uses and abuses the people who might be allies of him. You know, these two came along to help him in the quest. And Sakura is very controversial. He's, it was controversial in the original Clone Wars, it was controversial that they cast him as a real person who looks much different as, you know, with Forrest Whitaker and Rogue One. It's controversial they keep using him in Rebels. You know, people find him to be, you know, kind of just weird and frustrating and grating. But, guys, that's part of his character. Like, not every, you know, classic Star Wars character or or character from any, you know, universe is going to be someone that you love. 
It's like people love Darth Vader and, you know, Grand Admiral Thrawn because they're such deliciously evil bad guys. You also need, like, the annoying, you know, Imperial officers as a, as a you know, bureaucrats as a contrast to, to their single-mindedness. You need Saw Gerrera to bring out the, the better qualities of Mon Mothma and Bail Organa and the Ghost Crew and, and the Rogue One Crew. Right, he says, I will do whatever is required to be the victor. He still doesn't really know what that means. Now that is by far the biggest kyber crystal we've ever seen. So if they already have this, they must be pulling off a bunch of these from Jeddah, or at least a bunch of hundreds or thousands of smaller ones from Jeddah in the beginning of Rogue One. I don't know if we ever get a direct answer from the story group or in the published materials about how many kyber crystals or sort of like what volume they need to power the Death Star and like do the do the crystals get destroyed as when the Death Star does a blast? You know, interesting question I never really thought about was whether lightsabers, whether the kyber crystals and lightsabers degrade over time with usage, or whether they're you know eternal essentially unless they're broken. Great to see the Ewing do some actual maneuvering. It was envisioned as. A transport that's also maneuverable and can fight. By necessity, it mostly acts as a troop transport in, in Rogue One. Saw's appealing to Ezra about Lothal. How desperate will you get? You know, how radical would you, would you act to save your world? This is this is Mon Mothma's side speaking here, saving saving a, a handful of civilians and abandoning the mission. Never really makes sense, but I think that's why they have Sabi somewhat unlikable. Great to see him with the green lightsaber destroying the Kyber crystal. What an awesome image! I mean, not great that he's doing it necessarily, but a really cool cool visual. The thing is. If you if you take away Saw's sort of unlikability and d- diluted, paranoid weirdness, you know, he's kind of right about stuff. I mean, it's the whole terrorist versus freedom fighter thing. I mean, even listening to podcasts about Star Wars, they talk about, oh, he's not doing things the right way and blah, 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 blah. The bottom line is, though, po- when he dies and then the Rogue One crew, do, you know, do their heroic mission, perform their heroic mission, and then they die, well, the Rebellion actually takes on a lot of sauce tactics of, you know, of, of what we would consider terrorism. And so, I think that gets lost in, in the mix, is that people claim to dislike sauce methods, but they really just dislike the character, and at the same time, don't want to acknowledge that Like it, it, the the Jews in, in in Palestine before the state of Israel was formed, we talk about Palestinian terrorism now. But Palestinian terrorism used to mean Palestinian Jews, and the Jews uh, would you know would bomb the British who were occupying the land. 
it's all a matter of what point of view you're from. It's and it's very hard to fight against a much stronger power and not have some civilian casualties. It's just you just it's impossible. You know, when you're the much stronger power and you have a giant army, there's tons of civilian casualties as well. But fighting against them, it's going to happen. And so the question isn't really about the methods, in my opinion. It's about the people behind them and not letting yourself get... (laughs) Chopper ducks the guy out. It's so, it's because we don't trust Saw that we immediately also just trust the methods, I guess is what I'm saying. So I, I've been sort of missing it because it's very subtle, but Chomper in these two episodes is so good. He's the real hero. He really helps save these civilians by himself. Who, they have no idea what they're doing. Look at this. He's beating up the guy. It's awesome. Chomper beating up stormtroopers is one of the best things ever. So Sabine, you know, I, I need two commentaries for the first two episodes about the uh, legacy of Mandalore because I didn't think they were great, and they were sort of the obvious conclusion to Sabine's Mandalore story arc. I guess the one thing that wasn't obvious was that Duchess Satine's uh, sister, Bo-Katan, would not only take over leadership, but would take the Darksaber, or I should say would be given the Darksaber by Sabine. People think, oh, you know, we... we we earned Sabine through her training and, and her dealing with her life issues that she would get the uh, that she would get the dark saber and you know and then she just gives it away. But I actually liked it. And maybe it would make more sense if you know Bo-Katan, voiced by Katie Sankoff, was kind of holding it in trust when Sabine, if and when Sabine was ready for leadership one day, because Sabine's much younger than Bo-Katan. Sort of the idea, and Sabine feels like she has to help the rebellion in the meantime. But uh, She's, you know, Sabine's a guns girl, you know? I mean, she's great with weapons. She can fight with anything, but I think by giving her a dark saber, it, it lessens the, you know, I hate to say it, but it kind of makes Kanan and Ezra's lightsaber stuff less cool. She's already got guns and bombs and graffiti and so much stuff going on. She doesn't need a lightsaber, too. I'm not saying it was a mistake that they did that, but I think people missed that the whole dark saber plot line wasn't about her learning to use a darksaber and fighting like a Jedi. It was about dealing with her past and, and growing up and learning discipline and focus and stuff. Now that is one blowed up Star Destroyer. No doubt about that one. Often they'll blow up a Star Destroyer and it just kind of explodes all over the place and no one really dies. Apparently this one is definitely exploded. What they do now? Ezra's <laughs> <a> smile. <laughs> I'll tell you, man, the facial gestures that they're able to get on these Pixar animations are, are uh, astounding. Mmm, enlist. Yep. So Galen Erso, you know, again, Jinstad started working basically for Palpatine without realizing it when they were still the Old Republic fighting against the Separatists, and that merged into the new Empire. Uh, but Galen and Leo were running away uh, when Jin was still a little kid, 
you know, happened in the very early days of the Empire, much earlier than this, they realized what was going on. They, you know, even they didn't know exactly what the super weapon was, they knew that there was a, a great evil behind it. Um, and there it is. You know, and then the fact that Galen was found so quickly, uh, by Krennic relatively, you know, it's not clear, but Jin it seemed, grew a couple years older uh, when they were away, you know, and then Jin was on the, on the run with Saw for many years. And so if you've, if you love Rogue One and you've read the prequel novel Catalyst and you've read the prequel novel Rebel Rising, which follows Jin sort of in between her dad getting captured, her mom getting killed and her on the run with Saw. Sort of bridges that with Jin Erso and Rogue One. Uh, you know, the character of Sakura is really indispensable. And, you know, again, I think him being sort of, you know, dislikable on sort of a, uh, um, or unlikable, I should say, on sort of a gut level is part of the character and part of why he's important to the people who make these stories. So thank you so much. Um, these episodes are great, but I absolutely cannot wait to go to the episode that just aired, episodes five and six, that aired back to back, The Occupation and Flight of the Defender, where they go back to Lothal and face the TIE Defenders and Grand Admiral Thrawn and run into some creatures that they're not expecting. So thanks so much for listening. May the Force be with you and the Bizzle is out.